Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. In the middle of a series uh, called A Better Story. And uh, we're almost pretty much smack bang in the middle uh, of it. And we are looking at the large story of faith. The Christian narrative, which is a story of life, meaning, purpose, joy, hope, redemption, and love, and it is a better story than the story that our secular culture would like us to live. Uh, We live in a time that, and we've looked at this, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more later on, but we live in a time in 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 a society that speaks a different narrative. In fact, we're invited to live our own story. And if there's two pillars, well, well, let me just say that I'd say society, you've heard me say this before if you've been around, but society today is marked by hyper-individualism and hyper-consumerism. So it's all about me. It's all about what I can consume or what I can get out of life. And there are two foundations, well, there's more, but I think two of the large foundations for our society are built on the fact of, or this truth that we must reject authority and we must embrace authenticity. And so that is the narrative that we are part of. That's the story that we have been invited, we are invited into, we're compelled to in the world. And as I said a few weeks ago, it's not about a church and culture thing anymore. We're all secular now. We're all secular now. This is the water in which we swim. But in the midst of this, we need to understand that we have been invited into a better story. And perhaps we've forgotten that story, or maybe that story has lost its luster and its joy. And we're reminding ourselves of the story that we've been invited into. And so a few weeks ago, we started with creation, looking at the fact that we've been created on purpose with a personal identity, and we've been created for presence, for the loving presence of God. And then a couple of weeks ago before Mother's Day, we looked at sin and the fall, to use theological language, the fact that things have gone pear-shaped for us, and so we live now in a world filled with shame. To understand the good news, we need to understand the bad news, and the reality is is that we live in a time and a culture that is filled with shame. And today, we're going to look at the third part Because there is a shift, there is a turn, and we see that there is a God who pursues us. Throughout this great story, this this story that we're invited into, it's a story marked by the fact that God continues to pursue us. Even though we've walked away from him, he continues to pursue us. And it's through this theological language, it's a big word, it's a powerful word, it's a word I think we've lost in our context and our time, it's the word covenant. God pursues us through the mechanics of a covenant. See, God creates a way for relationship with himself despite our brokenness through a series of promises and shared commitments or covenants. You know, we make promises all the time, don't we? Most of them are trivial. Like like we will tell a work colleague that we'll complete a task by a certain time or a friend, hey, I will meet you at such and such place at this time for dinner. Or we'll tell our spouse, I'll take the rubbish out. Or maybe even a little bit more serious, I know there's a little bit of nudging there when I just said that, 
broken promises. Um, we make contracts. You know, how often are we, do, we, do we, on our digital device, does this thing flash up? You just need to agree to these terms and conditions, and we just mostly scroll down to the bottom and just tick it and move on. Does anybody here read? <laughs> anybody read the terms and conditions? Just put your hand up, because I, I just think you need a medal today. I actually think statistically that's quite impressive for, for, for a church. Uh, there was an organization uh, called ProPrivacy.com that sought to figure out how many people were actually reading terms and conditions. And so they sent out a survey that had part of it terms and conditions to see actually who read the terms and conditions. And they put within the conditions that they asked respondents to agree to these things. In the conditions were naming rights to their firstborn child, Access to the airspace above their property for, uh, property for purposes of drone traffic. Permission to give their mum full access to their browsing history. And the ability to invite a personal FBI agent to Christmas dinner for the next 10 years. And apparently, even though all of that was in there, 99% of people just ticked, yes, that is fine. We make promises all the time. And we break promises all the time. How many of us miss work deadlines? How many of us, even though we agree to a certain time for a meeting, actually don't turn up at the time that we've said? I'm very guilty of that. And I do this all the time now. I think with the advent of the mobile phone, how often do we text, they're in five minutes, they're in 10 minutes? I do wonder what happened before mobile phones? Did people just sit in cafes waiting for 10, 15 minutes, or were people just on time? I suspect that we were probably just a little bit more prompt than normal. We break promises all the time. We, we uh, miss loan repayments. But no matter how trivial the promises that we make are, they are important. In fact, promises are, are vital. And we have promises, we need to make promises and commitments because we live in a world of sin. Because we have this disposition in our hearts to fail, to not actually commit and uphold our end of the bargain. And so we need these promises to restore and to build trust within relationships. And the good news today is, is that God has made a promise to us. In fact, there are promises littered throughout the Bible. As I said before, there are covenants. God is a promise-making, covenant-making God. He has shown and made a commitment of love to us. And they're littered throughout the Bible, and we're going to sit in one this morning. It's from Genesis chapter 12. It's the call of Abram or Abraham. And so if you've got your Bibles, feel free to open them up, and we're going to jump into a promise that God makes to Abraham and to all of humanity. And the words are going to come up on the screen behind me if you want to read along there as well. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the side of the great tree at Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hill east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. If you understand the early parts of Genesis at all, after the creation and fall, you see that Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel have a falling out, a really bad one, leads in murder. And then you see throughout the early parts of Genesis, you see brokenness and pain in humanity. And it's at this point that God chooses to step into the world and he makes a promise with Abraham. I'm going to call him Abraham if that's okay, because he does, he gets a name change from Abram to Abraham, and I'm just used to saying that. And God's promise to Abraham had intended consequences, not just for Abraham, but for the whole world. As I said before, we live in a world that functions on the power of promises. See, promises are powerful because they create secure relationships. Promises create safety. We know this, right? We need promises, contracts, commitments when we purchase property or we purchase equipment. We bought a second-hand car a few months ago and I was adamant that we would be getting a warranty and we'd get all the paperwork because I didn't want anything to go wrong. We want contracts, we want promises because it creates safety. You know, there is one covenant in particular that sits throughout history and, and is deeply, uh, still deeply ingrained today even though it's losing its luster and that is marriage. Marriage is a set of promises. It's a, a contract, it's a covenant that is made uh, between man and woman. And we see that this is a, an example that we can look to. Marriages, the relationship of marriage is built on a set of promises that creates safety in relationship. So over 11 years ago, Megan and I made some promises. I think we've got a photo of Megan walking down the aisle and, uh, and there she is and uh, she, I, she's smiling. I, I think she's a little nervous to make the promises and commitment to me. Her father, my now father-in-law, he looks really nervous. <laughs> I'm not sure it was because he was in front of lots of people which he doesn't love or whether he just knew who he was handing his beautiful daughter to. But then we found ourselves at the, at, the, at, the, at the front of the church where we stood in front of one another and we made a bunch of promises. We made a covenant to one another which was to create safety in relationship. And there were vows that we made. You know, a bunch of you have made these kind of vows. This, this is my vow. This, these were the vows that I said on the day. I said, I, Andrew Graham Circum, take you, Megan Lorraine Rodewald, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, 
serve, protect, and defend. I added those words in there. Till death us do part according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. There are some big words in that covenant. There were words that, that say, and I know a number of you have said these, they are words that, that promise that love will endure through the good times and the bad times. There are some specific words. I am saying, Megan was saying her vows to a particular person, forsaking all others. It's exclusive, it's specific, and it is permanent. It's until death. Until death do us part. I was asked by a couple the other day, they said, Andrew, does, does marriage go beyond the grave? Is there marriage in heaven? I said, that's a good question. Jesus was actually asked that question. And Jesus, asked by the Sadducees, said, no, that marriage doesn't go into the afterlife. So as I said to this couple, I said, that's either really sad news or really good news, depending on how your marriage is going. I know, I know. You see, it's this contract, this covenant that actually creates safety. And God comes and he makes a covenant with us because he is a God of relationship who wants to create a framework, a foundation for us to relate to him. God is a God of covenants and we see it throughout the Bible. God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant, as we read, with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Moses. God makes a covenant with David. And ultimately, a covenant is made through his own son, Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to go into that too much because that's next week. And God's covenant is his expression of his love. God's covenant is an outworking of his love for us. The main word used for love in the Old Testament is the word hesed. And it speaks to God's consistent, ever faithful, relentless, extravagant love. Or as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, which is a great book that we give to all our kids when they get dedicated here at Gateway, she says, God's love is never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. That is God's covenantal love. That is the love that we encounter in the Old Testament. Why? God wants to be with his people. That is the narrative of Scripture. God is always pursuing us, even when we fail. And if you look at the story of human history, we see time and time and time again, humanity fails God. Time and time and time again, we fail God, but time and time and time again, God pursues his people. He comes again and he comes again, offering his faithful, reckless, generous, profound love for us. God is a covenant-making God. God is a God of grace and love who longs to dwell with his people. And that is the good news. That is the great story, that God longs to be with us. He longs to be with you. God is a God who longs to be with his people and he makes 
the mechanics. He creates the foundation. No matter our failure, he makes a way so that we can be in relationship with him. And so God comes to Abraham and he makes a commitment of love. He comes and he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. What had Abraham done? Nothing. Done nothing. Abraham was just there. Just doing his own thing. Building his own little family and empire. You know, he he was a person of wealth. And God steps in. It's a picture of grace. God comes to Abraham, not because of what he had done or how good he was, but because he chose Abraham. And he comes, he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to bless you. God is a God who is personal. And sometimes I think we struggle to understand that, but God is a God who is interested in you. God is a personal God and he comes to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. But it's not just for you, Abraham. See, the promise is also for all people. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Guess what? That's you and me too. God makes a promise to Abraham, but he makes a promise to us as well. This is a promise for us. And we're invited into it. As Craig Bartholomew and uh, Michael Goheen say in the book, The Drama of Scripture, as the Israelites obey God, they will demonstrate what life under God's reign will look like. The nations will be able to catch a glimpse of God's plan for all peoples. The whole of Israel's experience, including family life, law, politics, economics, and recreation, will reflect God's character and God's original creational intention for human life. Israel's life under God is to testify to the living presence of God within God's people. It is to be such a full and rich human life that the nations of the earth will be drawn into it. In this way, Israel will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to bless all nations. That is the picture that God gives and he sees it in Abraham. He says, I am making covenant with you in order that all peoples will be blessed. But it's not just a promise of blessing and this is how covenants work. There is also, it needs to be reciprocated. There needs to be a response. It's not like, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. That's it. Thanks for coming. There are some more requirements. There is a cost. See, covenants come with a cost. Let's look at marriage for a moment. See, marriage is not only a set of commitments that obviously has some benefits and blessings, but there's also some costs. I mean, you say forsaking all else. There, are, there is the cost of options, the options of other lovers. There's the cost of time. There's the cost of comfort. There's the cost of resources and money. There's the cost of choice. There's the cost of freedom. See, to step into a covenant requires sacrifice. It requires cost. And for Abraham, this is the case. There's two things in particular I want to point out. Firstly, Abraham has to obey. Abraham has to limit his options and choices to God's command. God says, go, and Abraham needs to follow. There's the cost of liberty and freedom in that because now Abraham is limiting his options to obeying God. That's the first one. The second one is placing faith. No longer can uh, Abraham trust himself and, and, and look to his own resources, but now he's going, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to step out. I'm going to take everything that I know. And I'm, I'm going to leave the family that I know. 
my parents and, and my brothers and my sisters, and I'm going to step out into a place that I can't see. There's a cost to that. To let go of control, well, that's a cost. To stay in the covenant, to know the blessing, is to obey and to live with faith. See, Abraham is placing his future, his freedom, and his fulfillment in the hands of another. And that's the same for us too. We're invited to place our faith, our future, our freedom, and our fulfillment in the hands of a God who loves us. It's a cost. It means obedience and it means faith. Or as Jesus says, when he comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the next thing he says in Mark chapter one? Repent and believe. Obey and have faith. We're invited into a covenant with God. God makes a promise to Abraham. God makes a promise to us. We're responded to obey and to have faith and that is hard. To live within the confounds of covenant, to live within the confounds of promises is hard, particularly when we live in a world that demands a different set of promises. See, promises are powerful because they create secure relationship, but we live in a world of promises that are made not to the other, not to the other person or to the other God. We live in a world of promises made to the personal self. We live in a world of promises made to the personal self. And I, I said this before, and we've been journeying through this. We live in a world where we are to reject authority. And, and when it comes to promises, when it comes to covenant, in our world today, such traditions, such frameworks, such covenants are seen as power plays, they're seen as authority moves, they're seen as manipulative, and therefore we need to throw them off. They're power plays. We need to throw off all things that stop us from living our free life. So Charles Taylor, in uh, reflecting a bit on uh, the philosophy of uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century French philosopher, writes this about our current world, the world that we live in. He speaks about the self-determining freedom of the secular narrative. It is the idea that I am free when I decide for myself what concerns me, rather than being shaped by external influences. Self-determining freedom demands that I break the hold of such external impositions and decide for myself. That is the world that we live in. We're to reject authority and we're to embrace our authentic self, our self-authorizing self. And covenants, promises, oh, well, they just inhibit us. Stop us from creating our own narrative. See, in our world, and there's, there's been a significant shift where historically meaning was something to be found something to be understood so that we could find our joy and place in it. There has been a shift and change so that meaning is no longer to be found. Meaning is to be created. And this includes all facets of life, including morality, truth, and ultimately our own fulfillment. And these two things have a significant impact on how we do life together. 
and how we live a life in covenant, in relationship one another. Firstly, because with this rejection of authority and the embracing of the authentic self, we now have a focus on the self, our own pursuit of self-fulfillment. And we see this in the covenant of marriage. The question that often we approach marriage with now are these questions. How will it fulfill me, my desires and my needs? And how will I be actualized in the process? When we approach the covenant of marriage, we ask those questions rather than the question, how can I fulfill my role within my family and society? I don't hear too many people asking those questions. I did a bit of research in regards to causes for divorce in our world today. And it was fascinating that lack of commitment was, in many researchers, it was lack of commitment that was the highest rate for divorce. And in a uh, Psychology Today article from last year, 2020, the author writes this, in my work with clients, this is a psychologist, I have seen that betrayal underlies most of the reasons given for divorce, although not necessarily infidelity. When my clients report a betrayal of their wedding vows, they often describe a betrayal of this, get this, of their hopes and dreams. The starry-eyed bride and groom find that their expectations are not met and their despair may lead to conflict, acting out, addiction, withdrawal, and the eventual breakdown of the relationship. And we may look at that and go, that's terrible. But if we're actually really honest with ourselves, I reckon that's us too. I'll be honest, that's me too. You know, I see and ask the questions, how is this going to fulfill my dreams and my desires? How is this relationship, how is this commitment going to actually further my cause? See, we're all secular now. And we need to be honest with how we process and how we see the world. So we see inside and outside the church today a significant lack of commitment. A significant lack of commitment. Let's be honest with our friendship groups, in our life groups and in our church, with our family. See, we live this narrative, if it doesn't serve me, then no thanks. We live with a focus on the self. Secondly, we live with a fear of commitment. I'm sure we've all heard of FOMO now. It's the fear of missing out. See, when we commit to something, we commit to a relationship, we commit to a covenant, we, we commit to a set of promises, we are saying no, forsaking, or others. That is deeply scary in our world today where choice is everything. Remember, we're to create our own meaning. We're to create our own life. We're to create our own story. And so we get locked in committing because we don't want to miss out. Choice is the enemy of commitment. And we see that in marriage. We see that in work. We see that played out in parties and events. We see it worked out in so many different areas of our life. See, our world today, the secular narrative is focused on the self and it's living under a fear of commitment and that leads ultimately to a failure of relationships. Talking to a couple of guys up the back who walked in before church this morning, 
they heard the music going on, the band was cranking it out and they're here for a truck show from Tasmania. They walked in and <laughs> the young guy said, is, is this church? Wow, I've, I've never seen anything like this. I got chatting to them and they were reflecting just how much the world today has become isolated and disconnected. We know this, right? We are seeing a world that is becoming more and more fragmented. We are losing our sense of empathy because we can't commit. So we have all these shallow relationships that rob us of depth. We're unable to emotionally process. And so we're losing meaning. As Mark Sayers says, lifestyles in the West now trend towards immaturity, paralysis, and isolation. At a personal level, level, the Western life script creates an anti-renewal system. Its inner contradictions and contagions drive us away from flourishing and instead push us to decline. But that doesn't mean that we don't long for commitment. Our culture still longs for covenant relationship. You know, one of the issues that has dominated the media in recent months has been around the horrific treatment of women in parliament uh, and more broadly, I think, in Australian society. And this has led to further conversations around consensual sex and in particular around the creation, and you've, maybe you've seen this and you heard this, the creation of some form of contract, whether that be an app or something else to be completed before an intimate relationship progresses. See, there's a cry for protection, for dignity, and for safety, and rightly so. It's a cry for covenant. Our society just needs to understand that we already have one. God has given it to us, and it's called marriage. See, we long for covenantal relationship because we are created for it, and the greatest and most meaningful covenantal relationship isn't marriage. It's relationship with him. It's relationship with God. That is the relationship that brings us deepest meaning, deepest value, and deepest purpose. The thing is, is that we all get drawn into other things, whether it be marriage or things and stuff. See, the biblical word for this, where we give ourselves to other things, is, is the word idols. And Idol, when we hear the word idol, we, we kind of hear the think stone and wood and kind of carvings, but that's not what idols are. See, idols are anything in creation that we find our identity, meaning, hope, value, and purpose in. They're the things that we look at and go, you will make me happy. You will fulfill me. And they are everywhere in our society at the moment. And we make covenants with them because we believe they will give us everything that we desire. But the thing is, they don't. You know, one of the things that, that we do see in our world today that is a major idol is sex. You know, sex, as, as I look at it in our world today, we are bombarded with the messaging that if you want to find fulfillment and meaning in life, then you need to find your right sexual expression. You need to find your right sexual identity. If you just live out your way, if you just express your freedom in this way, that constitutes who you are. We know this, right? We see it everywhere. It's, it's a massive identifier for us in our world today. But it's not just outside the church, it's everywhere. 
And we might see things in different ways, but, but, but they sit there at our heart, particularly as it permeates in. And, and perhaps for us, it's, it's, it's marriage. Marriage is, an, is the idol, whether you're married or not, or maybe it's the outcome of marriage, which is kids. And we look at marriage, whether we're there or not there yet, or we look at kids and we place them and we go, they, that person will fulfill me. That relationship will fulfill me. That child will fulfill me. And I'm here to tell you, you just turn it into another idol. It will always, that person, those people, that relationship will always fail you. They will. Idols fail us. And then they enslave us. See, we become obedient to our desires. They become our masters and we become enslaved to them. Now, this sounds really heavy right now. I understand that. But there's great hope in the story of Abraham because this was Abraham's story too, in particular. See, so God comes to Abraham and we've just read, we've unpacked that God makes a covenant with Abraham. But that's not the end of the story. It's not like, Abraham, here are the promises, you've obeyed. Uh, Chapter 12 is done and everybody lives happily ever after. That is not the case. If we continue to read, Abraham and Sarah try and have this family, right? He's been promised to have this great nation that will bless all peoples of the earth and he can't even have a son. He begins to think and wonder, God, are you true to your covenant? Can I truly trust you? Am I going to obey you? And what's the decision? No. So they hatch a plan. Abraham lies with Hagar and they have a son, Ishmael. Well, wasn't that a bad move? Turn on the news today and I'm still hearing the ramifications. And finally... God is, as he always is, is faithful to the covenant and Abraham, Sarah falls pregnant and they have Isaac. You keep tracking through the story now and you get to Genesis chapter 22 and God asks Abraham to do in our minds and our senses a horrific thing. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, Isaac, and I want, to take, I want you to take him up a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. We hear that story and our common senses just go, that is horrific. I cannot worship a God like that. But we need to unpack what's going on. Why is God doing what is is he doing? What is his intent? Remember, Abraham had already failed to uphold the covenant. And God has made a promise with Abraham, I've chosen you. I believe that God was checking with Abraham. He was testing Abraham. That's why it's called Abraham is tested because he's testing Abraham again. He said, Abraham, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust the promise that I have made to you? Abraham, are you going to take hold of control again? Abraham, are you going to follow your own idols? See, the shift had been is that Abraham had shifted from trusting and worshipping God to trusting and worshipping his own future. I'll be a great nation. God wanted to test Abraham's heart. Was Abraham going to be a covenantal God? And this time, Abraham trusted God. He takes Isaac, and they begin to go up the mountain. What's interesting is Abraham trusts the covenant this time. They're accused before he even starts moving up 
the mountain. Abraham turns to his servants and says, wait here, Isaac and I will return. Abraham knew and trusted the covenant. God had said, I will make you a great nation. Therefore, in what, however it was going to work, Isaac would live, but he would trust God. And so we see the story in the journey that Abraham takes and then God yells out at the last moment, stop Abraham. A ram is provided and that is sacrificed in his stead. There are great gospel underpinnings to this story. But here's the thing. God wanted to test and know that Abraham's heart was on, on God and not another idol. Not family, not his future, not his fame, but on God. Abraham trusted the covenant. And so God was fulfilled the promises and we live under that blessing today. God wants not just Abraham, but he wants us to know where our heart lies. And that is why we go through times of testing, times of trial. Times of testing and trial, they're not real cool today. We don't really like to experience pain and suffering, but God uses the suffering and the pain that we go through to sharpen and grow our resolve and for us to come to a greater understanding of how much God loves us. Love what Tim Keller says as he speaks of this passage. He says, it's quite a long passage, roll, roll with me here. He says, something is safe for us to maintain in our lives, something safe for us to hold on to, only if it really only if it has really stopped being an idol. That can happen only when we are truly willing to live without it. When we truly say from the heart, because I have God, I can live without you. Sometimes God seems to be killing us when he's actually saving us. Here he was turning Abraham into a great man, but on the outside it looked like God was being cruel. To follow God in such circumstances seems to be, seems to be a blind faith, but actually it is a vigorous, grateful faith. The Bible is filled with stories of figures such as Joseph, Moses and David in which God seemed to have abandoned them but later it is revealed he was dealing with the destructive idols in their lives that could only have come to pass through their experience of difficulty. See, God refines us, he shapes us and he grows our love through suffering, through covenant, through limit. See, to walk in God's love, we must discover the liberating gift of limit. See, to step into covenant is to say no to options. It's to say no to creating my own sexualized, not sexualized, actualized self. It's actually to say, God, you have a better plan for me. And even though I would love to do all these things, I'm going to trust you. And it's when we figure that out when we understand and embrace the limits that God has for us, it is then we step into freedom and then we step into flourishing. We need to get hold of this in our time and our age because as we do, there is great vitality, there is great joy, there is great energy, there is great relationship. As Pete Scazzaro says, receiving the gift of limits touches the core of our relationship with God. When we understand limit, we understand God's love for us. And we can do it because God has limited himself for us. God didn't have to keep intervening into the situation. He could have said, I'm done with humanity. I'm starting again. Wipe you all out and we'll just go again. But no, God chooses to limit himself 
He chooses to tie himself to a covenant time and time and time again because he wants to be in relationship with us. And when we can understand that too, when we can understand the gift and the liberating power of limit, we will be invited into life, into love and into a better story. That is the invitation for every one of us. But to walk in this better story is to walk in limit. And what does limit look like? It looks like obedience and it looks like faith. Obedience and faith. That is what it means to walk in relationship with God. I reckon there's a a couple of responses that I'd love to land with today. The first one is broad. As I was praying and preparing and praying for us today, I got a sense that there are people here who are wrestling with choices. And you're actually wrestling with, do I trust God or not? Do I actually limit myself? Do I actually go, God, even though I can't see and even though it doesn't feel nice or even though everything around me desires to go in another way? God, I'm wrestling. And I reckon, and it may be big for some people here today or it might might be small. But I reckon there are people here today who are wrestling And God wants to remind you that He is for you and He may be taking you through a time of testing and trial, but it's so that you can know the goodness of His covenant, the goodness of His relationship. And that maybe not now, but into the future, you will receive, you will see the blessing. Reckon there's people here like that today. The other one is really practical and direct. One of the ways in which we publicly declare that we are in relationship with God, it's a covenantal statement, is through baptism. It's actually stepping down and going into the waters of baptism and coming out and saying, I am, it's a public declaration of the inward reality. I am in Christ. I'm a Christian. The old has gone and the new has come. I am in covenantal relationship with Jesus. Now, I just wonder whether there are people here today and you haven't been baptised and it's time to get baptised. And we have a baptism service at Mackenzie on the 30th of May. So in a couple of weeks' time, and we're inviting the whole church. So put it in your diary now, 2.30 p.m. If you didn't see the mail, it went out. Down at Mackenzie, we're going to celebrate the city and we're going to celebrate in baptism. We've already got a number lined up. And if you haven't been baptised and you're a follower of Jesus, we'd love to have you in that pool. And just for you, it's going to be heated. So if you haven't been baptised, then I'd love you to do something today. In a moment, I'm going to invite both groups down. I'd love for you to come down, and I've got a bunch of towels. And if you want to get baptised, I'd love for you to come down and just stand and grab, grab a towel and hold on to it. I'd love to pray for you. As I say, saying, it is time for me to acknowledge God loves me. He died for me. I'm in relationship with Him. It's time to make a public declaration. I wonder whether we can stand in this place this morning. God is a God who pursues us. Abraham didn't do anything. God just stepped into his world. It's the same with us today. 
I just wonder whether as we, uh, as we just stand in this place that you're either of those categories. We're going to worship in a minute. We're going to declare the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And if you are here today and you're in either of those categories, perhaps you're in a, you're in a, you're in a moment, a moment of testing, of trial, maybe. And as I said, big or small, we'd love to pray for you just to encourage you and bless you as you seek to keep your eyes on Him in this season. Or if you would love to, to get baptised, you know, this is your moment. I'd love for you to come. I'm praying that there's people here today. Just come and grab a towel and just stand. I'd love to pray for both of you. So if that's either category, before we worship, I'm just going to invite you to come and stand down the front. Either of those categories right now, can you please just come and step out from where you are and come down the front? I think there's a number. This is a place where we get to encourage and pray for people. If you're here in this place, for all those categories, you're in a place, a moment of decision, of wrestle, of testing, of trial, or you want to get baptised. Come on, step out from where you are. I know there's more. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, we would love to encourage you in your journey. Help us help you by going to gatewaybaptist.com.au and clicking on Get Connected. 